Again, we'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us this morning. Last week, we covered Daniel chapter 7 in our sermon series through the book of Daniel. And one of the temptations we discussed is that we sometimes are tempted to stop reading the book of Daniel once we get through chapter 6. That's where all the cool stories about fiery furnaces and lion's dens are. And then we don't want to really go through chapters 7 through 12 because that's vision and prophecy and stuff that's strange and confusing and maybe even a little bit intimidating. But when we resist the temptation to focus on all the single details or trying to piece together all the symbolism to decipher some kind of hidden code that no one else knows, if we resist that temptation of chapter 7 through 12, then we can actually find a really valuable message, even for Christians today who might think it's hard to relate to the passages in chapter 7 through 12. Now, when it comes to the simple, valuable message from Daniel 7 that we discussed last week, it was this. In the end, even after all the suffering and chaos that God's people endure, in the end, God wins. It's that simple. The Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven and establish his kingdom forever. And God's people will no longer suffer the pain and the hardship brought about by Satan and sin and death and even the earth, wicked earthly kingdoms like Daniel's having to face. In the end, God wins. That's the simple message. A message, message of encouragement for Daniel, for those in exile, and even for us today. Now, we pick back up this morning in chapters eight and nine, again, encountering a vision that seems very removed from us, can seem confusing. Some of us might even think it seems irrelevant for God's people today. What would a passage like this have to possibly do with me? Chapter eight, when people preach through the book of Daniel, it's often completely ignored. But again, like last week. There are valuable lessons for God's people today to harvest from these chapters if we just pay attention and we just look for the big picture. So with that, open your Bibles to Daniel chapter eight. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be located on page 632. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave this morning. But before we get into Daniel eight, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for your word that we've had the privilege of reading over these past four weeks, uh, specifically the book of Daniel. Um, Sometimes we come to these Old Testament books and and we just wonder, what does this have to do with us? Uh, What kind of value could this possibly offer? Uh, These books are sometimes harder to understand and and maybe not even as enjoyable to read. And yet so far, I pray uh, that we have just gotten some wonderful, wonderful lessons out of this book. Lessons about who we are, and more importantly, even uh, lessons about who you are. And God, I pray that trend would continue this morning, uh, that we would just keep mining uh, for for your truth in the book of Daniel, chapters 8 and 9. God, thank you for uh, Savannah Britting uh, and the decision that she made uh, to be baptized. Uh, Just a wonderful thing to see and be a part of this morning as John baptized her. God, we pray for her, uh, but as always, when we have these baptisms, I pray that you would give us uh, a sense of responsibility 
to be her brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage her and love her and serve her as she continues walking with you and starts this new page in her life. God, thank you for this morning, for this time we have together. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, as we start out Daniel chapter eight, we encounter Daniel a couple of years after he had the vision that we read about last week. So this is a few years after Daniel seven. And this time around, he has another vision. This vision in chapter eight takes place in Susa, one of the larger cities of the Babylonian Empire. And while Daniel is there, he sees two different animals, a ram and a goat. The ram represents the Medes and the Persians, those who would soon overtake Babylon and kill King Belshazzar. The ram is powerful. It becomes great. No other beast could stand before him. The ram charges in every direction, taking out anyone or anything that stands in its way. That is until Daniel sees the goat. The goat represents Greece, the empire that will overtake the Medes and the Persians the same way they overtook the Babylonians. The goat charges the ram that no other animal had been able to face and defeats him convincingly. The goat, with his multiple horns, becomes utterly unstoppable. Specifically, Daniel notices a little horn. We saw the same imagery used last week in Daniel 7. The little horn, most believe, representing Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, will become a particular source of suffering for God's people. If you're a student of history, years later, he will profane the Jewish temple with pagan sacrifices and attempt to make the Jews do the same, sacrificing an unclean pig on the altar of their God. The Maccabee family would stand up to his wicked wickedness and they would go down in history as Jewish heroes because of their stand. Now, we read this vision about rams and goats and Antiochus Epiphanes and sacrifices and temples. And we think, OK, what in the world does that have to do with me? It can be a little bit difficult to get something out of that for our own lives right now. Well, Daniel, he has a hard time putting all this together, too. In the moment, you certainly can't blame him trying to see these visions, trying to wrap his mind around all of this. So an angel from God named Gabriel lends a hand. He speaks about the immense suffering that Greece will bring upon God's people. We read in Daniel 8 verses 24 and 25. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken. But by no human hand. OK, sounds good. A bad ruler is going to come. He's going to persecute the Jews, but God's going to defeat him. Sounds good. Sounds like a nice history lesson. Could be interesting for some reading on your own time. But again, what does it have to do with me? What value does that have for my walk with Christ? Well, preacher Brian Chapel mentioned several things that Daniel 8 has to offer us. Number one, he suggests that this teaches Christians that evil will have its day. 
Evil will have its day. Kingdoms will rage. Wickedness will reign. Idolatry will flourish. But this doesn't surprise God. It doesn't surprise God. And it doesn't mean that God has somehow completely lost control of our world, as if God bit off more than he could chew by creating man who then sinned. No, this doesn't surprise God. God is still the king, even though evil will have its day. Something good for us to consider. Daniel 8 also teaches us that even though evil will have its day, there's no doubt about that. God will have a say in the end. At the time that he was persecuting God's people, many of them probably believed that that Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, could never fall. And that God's people were finally, once and for all, facing the end. That their suffering was never going to find relief. But sure enough, that ruler did fall. Just like every other wicked king just like every other vicious persecutor will. Even Satan himself will fall once and for all. Because even though evil has its day, God does have a say in the end. Like we talked about last week in Daniel 7, in the end, God wins. Daniel 8 also corrects several common mistaken beliefs that we Christians sometimes subconsciously hold to. We don't mean to hold to these beliefs. We maybe know in our heads that they're wrong, but sometimes we kind of find ourselves drifting towards them. The first mistaken belief is this. If you just have enough faith, you won't have to deal with suffering. If you just have enough faith, you won't have to deal with illness or job loss or finances Or death of a loved one. Or injustice. Just have enough faith and God will take care of you. Well, contrary to popular teaching and preaching today that makes its money by focusing on shallow health and wealth and prosperity. What we read in Daniel 8 is that it's often God's people who suffer the most. It's often the saints of God who face the most pain and the most hardship. And the most challenges. So no. It's a mistaken belief. And a theological blunder. To think that if we just have enough faith. Then we'll have a free ticket away from pain. And suffering. Daniel 8 makes that clear. The second mistake is this. If you remove blessing. From God's people. Then they won't have faith anymore. In other words. God's people only have faith because God takes care of them. The second God stops taking care of them, the second things go south or go haywire, then God's people will just fade away. They'll lose their faith. They'll give up. And while Jesus does certainly hint that there are people who receive the word, and initially it seems to really bear fruit, it seems to take some deep root, but then when the sun comes, the scorching heat comes, it fades, that just shows that Many people who face suffering and pain and hardship and lose their faith maybe weren't as deeply rooted as we once thought they were. You know, Satan buys into this same mistake in Job chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. 
as Satan is talking with God and basically placing a bet on whether or not he can get Job to disobey, Satan says this. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan places a wager that God, if you take away Job's blessing, if you make things go poorly for him, if he loses his wealth, if he loses his family, if he loses his reputation, if he has to suffer, then Job's going to give up his faith just like that. But in the end, we see that Satan was wrong in placing that bet. This chapter corrects the mistake that God's people will simply fade the second suffering comes their way. It tells us that evil will have its day. Evil will cause chaos for God's people. God's people will often suffer. But that in the end, God will have a say. It also tells us clearly that true faith does not lead to a lack of suffering. And true faith cannot be defeated simply by the presence of suffering. In fact, what Daniel 8 tells us, and really the whole book of Daniel, is that true faith is sharpened and strengthened through times of suffering. Endurance through suffering is arguably the mark of what mature faith really is. There's so much to take from Daniel 8 if we just are willing to look and think a little bit more deeply. With that, let's turn to Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. We're going to read both of these chapters and see that they really do go hand in hand together. Daniel 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so something different from chapter 8 is that in chapter 9, there's no vision, yet at least. Daniel is reading the words of Jeremiah. Now one thing to consider as you read the Bible is to consider that different works of the Bible are not just isolated pieces of literature. It's not like this is just 66 random stories all kind of collected in the same binding. When we read the pages of Scripture, we're reading authors who lived often in the same time. Authors who often read each other's writings. Authors who maybe even knew each other personally in some cases. When we consider that, it can really bring our Bible reading to life. And it can really help us consider that this is one big story, not a bunch of random, unconnected stories. But as Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, he has a breakthrough. He discerns what Israel's exile, about how long it will last. He discerns that it will last 70 years. 70 years is ancient slang. For one generation, one lifetime. Now you can picture Daniel reading these words of Jeremiah, doing some math in his head, thinking, all right, Nebuchadnezzar reigned this long, and then came Belshazzar, 
And now we're with Darius. Add that together, carry the five. That means that the exile is almost over. The exile is coming to an end. Wait a minute, what? The exile is coming to an end. Do you understand what this means for Daniel? What could his reaction be? What do you think he would do when he puts all this together and wraps his mind around what Jeremiah is saying when he discerns this? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? Well, there's lots of things that he could do. He could pack his bags, make sure the snow globes are wrapped in newspaper, but he's getting ready to go. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. Well, he could do that. He could throw a party, invite all of his fellow Jews to come and celebrate that their deliverance is knocking at the door. He could park his chariot in King Darius's spot. After all, what are they going to do? Fire him. He could alert his fellow Jews and shout from the rooftops that their deliverance is coming. It's almost here. Just hold on a little bit longer. He doesn't do any of those things. No party, no packing, no announcements. As he reads this and discovers this, the first thing he does is he prays. Look at Daniel 9, verses 3 through 15. We're not going to have these verses up on the screen. Just listen. Just listen to this prayer. There's so much there. And maybe even try to pick out a few themes as you listen to these words. Things that are important. Daniel 9, verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord, our God, belong mercy and forgiveness. We have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, And have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. 
there is so much that could be said in verses 3 through 15. So much content to this prayer. So many big themes that we could pull out of this. Yet I want to focus on just a couple. Number one, the first theme, worship. When Daniel starts out the prayer, he refers to God as great and awesome. Now that's significant because consider everything that Daniel has gone through. We're talking decades of suffering. We're talking pain, mocking, incredible hardship, forgetting your home, attempts to erase every single part of your identity. All these things Daniel has gone through for decades. After all that God has allowed them to go through at the hands of Babylon, after all the wrath and all of the judgment that God has poured out upon them through Babylon, Daniel still refers to God as great. Even after all that, he still refers to God as awesome. Now, as we think about that, it could be pretty humbling to ask the question, how often do our prayers reflect worship, even after God has allowed us to face incredible suffering? Do we call God great and do we call God awesome even during those times? Or do we only call God great and awesome when things are going well for us? Daniel worships even after all he's been through. The second theme we see is the theme of repentance. This is all over verses 3 through 15. But we don't just see prayers of personal repentance. We see communal Repentance. Look at the words that Daniel uses in these verses. We have sinned. We have not listened. To us belongs open shame. We have rebelled. All Israel. He lists the princes, the kings, the prophets, the priests, the people. All Israel. As Daniel repents, he's not so prideful. Or so individualistic to worry about who's to blame. Or who sinned worse than anybody else. You know, I didn't really do anything wrong. You saw what I did in the lion's den. You saw how I was faithful even when all I had was vegetables. I don't deserve the punishment we've received, but I've just kind of been dragged into this. God, maybe those people should repent. They're certainly more guilty than I am. We don't see that at all from Daniel. He's not interested in proclaiming his own innocence. He's simply interested in repenting. Now, again, when God's people are guilty of sin today, which we so often are, do we focus on genuine repentance as a community? Or do we try to spend more time proving that whatever has gone wrong isn't my fault? Those are the big questions we must wrestle with. Let's pick up in verse 16, closing out the prayer. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. As Daniel closes the prayer, we see two more themes in particular. The first theme is petition. Even after all this time, Daniel isn't so hardened. He's not too prideful to ask for God's forgiveness and mercy. Now, Daniel doesn't hesitate to acknowledge that they certainly don't deserve it. It's not as if they've done enough penance. It's not as if they've felt bad enough for long enough to where they're even. And now God should probably let them go back home. Daniel says we repent not because of our righteousness at all, but only and solely and purely by your mercy. Do we make these petitions? The second theme is the theme of trust. The fact that Daniel even prays this prayer in the first place shows the level of trust that he has in God. He trusts somehow that God, even after all their sin, even after all their rebellion, even after the word he uses, their treachery, he trusts that God is, in fact, forgiving and that God is, in fact, merciful and that God is still faithful. To the people called by his name, even in the midst of their sin. Let's pick up in verses 20 through 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Gabriel makes another appearance, just like he did in Daniel 8. And that time he brought good news that even the most wicked kings, even the most vicious persecutors will one day be defeated by God. But here he brings even better news. And it's four simple words. Daniel, you are greatly loved. In spite of all their sin, all those years of exile, their treachery. Even though Daniel may have often wondered if it could still possibly be true. God sends Gabriel. And Gabriel has a message. Daniel, you are greatly loved. When you really think about it, those four words, you are greatly loved. Isn't that the message of the gospel itself? In spite of all your sin, in spite of all your rebellion, your treachery, your wickedness, you are greatly loved. That is the core message of the gospel. As we close out, we look at Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 
and 27. Gabriel makes it clear to Daniel that, yes, the exile is coming, the end of the exile, rather. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. That's all great. That's good. But it doesn't mean that God's people will never suffer again. There will be more patterns of suffering and chaos and exile. The time for these things to end once and for all isn't quite here yet. Because only the Son of Man can usher in that time where suffering will be no more. And that's far in the future. Now, as we try to piece together Daniel 8 and 9, how do they go together? And again, the same question we asked earlier, what can we take from it? Well, allow me to propose a few things. And it starts with this. Believe it or not, we may have more in common with Daniel than we sometimes think. After all, like Daniel, we too, as Christians, look forward to an end of suffering and death and pain. Like Daniel, we too have a promise from God that deliverance is coming. Our deliverance isn't simply getting return to an old homeland or a temple rebuilt or a restored political kingdom. Our deliverance is God's eternal kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, ushered in by Jesus himself, the true son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. However, there's one big thing that makes our situation just a little bit different from Daniel's, even though we do have some things in common. What makes us different is that unlike Daniel, we don't know when to expect our deliverance. Daniel read the book of Jeremiah, and he knew for sure that within several years, deliverance would come. Gabriel confirms that for him. And yet Jesus tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, that we don't know when he will return. So what should we do? Is there anything we do differently than Daniel? No. We do the same thing Daniel did. As we wait for our deliverance to come, we worship. We repent. We make petitions and requests to God. We trust that God is merciful, that God is forgiving, and that we are greatly loved. In other words, we strive to be faithful as we wait. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus tells his disciples that God desires to give his people the kingdom. And then just a few verses later in Luke chapter 12, verse 40, he tells his disciples to always be ready for when the moment of deliverance will come. Because it will come like a thief in the night when we least expect it. As we tie these chapters together and consider other words of scripture, the challenge becomes a little bit more clear. And it becomes a little bit more relevant to our situation today. The challenge is for us to faithfully wait, even as evil has its say in the world, even as evil has its say in our own lives, directly and indirectly. At the cross, evil had its say in Jesus's life, but even that led to resurrection. We faithfully wait, knowing that eventually God will have a say over evil once and for all. Ironically, the symbol of evil that brought about Jesus's death has already guaranteed that in the end, evil doesn't win. God does. We faithfully wait, knowing that the only legitimate faith is the faith that endures through suffering. 
is sharpened and strengthened by it. And we don't have to wonder whether or not it will be worth the cost. We faithfully wait because even though, unlike Daniel, we don't know when our deliverance is coming, we're certain that it is coming, even if we don't know the timing. We faithfully wait, looking forward to the day when it will be God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom once and for all. The day when we won't have to worry anymore about rams and goats, beasts from the sea and wicked kings, all the scary visions of the book of Daniel. We won't have to worry about pain and suffering and tears and hardship and persecution anymore. Because we'll have the Son of Man reigning as our one true King, And the message will be clear as day for all to see and for all to hear that because of what Christ did for us on the cross, we are greatly loved. We are sons and we are daughters, not by our own righteousness, but by God's mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can look to your word, even the parts that are a little bit more confusing, a little bit harder to relate to, and that we can just find simple truths of who you are and what you've done for us in it. God, thank you that Daniel discovered that he was greatly loved by God in spite of his sin, in spite of his rebellion, and he didn't even see the cross. God, I pray that we would know with even more certainty that we are greatly loved because we have seen what lengths you go to to save sinners. We've seen your son's blood poured out and his body broken. And to consider that that was for us. God, I pray that that would humble every single person here. God, we love you. We praise you. Help us to faithfully wait until the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven and your kingdom is truly once and for all established for all of us to see in creation around us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior as the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven as your source of deliverance from sin and death, and punishment, and guilt, all those things. I pray that you would place your trust in Jesus this morning. There will be several elders standing at the sides of the room. They'd be happy to talk with you, happy to pray with you, happy to answer any questions that you might have about making that decision to follow Christ the way Savannah Britting did this morning that we celebrate. So we'll sing one final worship song, take a moment to talk to our elders, and we hope that you have a wonderful week ahead.